Oh, brave new world. This is what young Miranda exclaims in The Tempest upon encountering far more people than she's ever seen before in her life on a remote island with her father, Prospero. It's quite the brave new world for Ariel, too. Ariel, the sprite, the spirit, who flits around the events of this play packed with revenge and tomfoolery and first loves and betrayal, observing all the while the behaviors of these odd creatures called humans. You're listening to Shakespeare's Shadows, the podcast that brings together interviews with both actors and academics for deep dives into Shakespeare characters. I'm your host, Emily Rome. We're in double digits now, we've made it to episode 10, and this episode is the first of the podcast highlighting a non-human character, Ariel, the sprite, the fairy-like creature who is a servant to the magician Prospero. For this episode, I spoke with Mark Courtley, who is in the midst of playing Ariel for the Royal Shakespeare Company production of The Tempest at the Barbican in London. Mark kindly made time for a phone interview on a full day in between a matinee and an evening show. Are you at the Barbican right now? I am. I'm in my dressing room. Yep, still in my gear because um, the the sort of get up for the show is so extreme for this one that um, I can't leave. <laughs> so I'm in my blue face yeah. and my wig and all the rest of it. You just get to be Ariel all day, all afternoon. Exactly. <laughs> I could think of worse things to be. Right. I'll explain just what that gear is that Mark mentioned. This RSC production, oh my gosh, it was stunning, absolutely dazzling. It's Shakespeare's most magic-filled play beautifully bursting into the digital age. The RSC has deployed what's a rather groundbreaking use of technology for the theater world, motion capture. I'm sure you've seen the final product of motion capture performance in several months of post-production in plenty of movies, but here it is on stage, in real time, in a live performance. Mark Courtley's costume doubles as a motion capture suit, and during several moments of the play, his exact movements are reproduced on screens above the stage as an aerial avatar, this glowing blue creature that appears to be made of light and air, and that avatar can totally play out the magic of the text, transforming into a harpy or dividing into several burning flames. The technological feats of this Tempest were pulled off with a partnership with Intel and by the artists at Imaginarium Studios. That's the company co-founded by the reigning king of motion capture performances, Andy Serkis, who's crafted such characters as Gollum in Lord of the Rings and Caesar in the recent Planet of the Apes movies. You'll hear from Mark later about some of the work he did with Andy Serkis in rehearsals. This RSC production of The Tempest was filmed before an audience in Stratford-upon-Avon before it moved on to the Barbican. I watched a screening of that at a movie theater in downtown Los Angeles. I wish I could have seen it on stage with the live motion capture right there. But seeing this filmed for the big screen, I did enjoy getting what was kind of a front row seat to the play. In medium close-up shots, I could see lovely performance details in Mark Courtley and his co-star, celebrated Shakespearean actor Simon Russell Beale, who played Prospero. For this episode, I also interviewed Dr. Brenda Chari. She's an English professor at Keene State College in Keene, New Hampshire, and among her publications is a book called The Tempest, Language and Writing, which is part of the Art and Student Guide series. Here's Dr. Chari. I mean, of all the plays, I think The Tempest has, to me personally, has been the most uh, fascinating. I mean, it's among the most beautiful pieces of writing, I believe, in the English language. So the aesthetics of the play, along with the very complicated 
and sometimes a disturbing political content alongside, you know, the philosophical and the other speculations. So for me, it's always been interesting. How can a single text be, you know, aesthetic as well as philosophical, as well as beautiful, I mean, as well as political and... Uh, which is what has always drawn me to the Tempest. And of course, you know, post-colonial readings have uh, given my own uh, context, I believe, you know, as a, as a Shakespeare scholar trained, originally trained my first part of my training in India. Uh, I think the post-colonial readings, of course, also interested me. We'll get into where Ariel comes into those post-colonial readings a bit later in this episode. Right now, I'll give you a quick refresher on some of the story of the Tempest. So... This sprite Ariel has been the servant to Prospero for 12 years. Prospero found Ariel imprisoned in a pine tree on a remote island, trapped in that tree there by the witch Sycorax. Ariel's servitude is kind of a debt he's paying off after Prospero, a powerful magician, released him from this tree. The magical Ariel helps Prospero carry out his spells and his biddings, and Prospero has also enslaved a creature named Caliban, who we're told is the offspring of that same Sycorax and the devil himself. Now, Prospero is stuck on this island with his daughter, Miranda, now a teenager, because he was banished by his brother, Antonio, and the king of Naples, Alonso, when Antonio stole Prospero's dukedom from him. Prospero was once the Duke of Milan, and when a ship carrying his brother and the king comes near the island, Prospero takes this chance to enact his revenge, telling Ariel to sink the ship with a violent storm. So now Antonio and Alonso and all these men from court who helped them betray Prospero are on this island too. The king's son, the Prince Ferdinand, gets separated from the rest of the group and falls in love with Miranda. Toward the beginning of the play, Prospero promises Ariel that he will free him in two days. So we meet Ariel in his final two days of his dozen years of servitude. It's quite the busy couple of days as Ariel messes with these traitorous men who have washed up on shore, and he's also tasked with putting on a spectacular magic show for Miranda and Ferdinand as an engagement gift to them. At the end of the play, Prospero drops all his magical tormenting of his brother and the other men from court, and he forgives them. Prospero tells everyone that they will sail to Naples, where Ferdinand and Miranda will be married, and then he'll return to Milan. And yes, he does set Ariel free. So how does a sprite move? Well, the text of the play describes Ariel, like the sound of his name, as air and drinking air. The phrase melted into thin air, in fact, shows up in print for the first time in this play. Shakespeare appears to have coined the term. So an actor can draw on those parts of the text and any other perceptions or imaginings of how a spirit would move about. I think uh, the actor would have to turn to sort of cultural understandings, I mean, I think, of how a sprite, you know, would move. So one would think, you know, flitting and graceful and light and uh, whatnot. And the text says he divides and burns in many places. At one point he says, Ariel says that I divide and burn. Obviously, one cannot do that as a human. But so I guess it's entirely up to the actor's imagination. But I think, you know, very agile and acrobatic. You cannot have this heavy, lumbering Ariel. Chatting with Mark Courtley, I asked him about one detail of his movement style as Ariel. He almost always would walk or crouch on tiptoe. It's like gravity never quite pulled the heels of his feet to the ground for this spirit who's so light he's made of air. In hindsight, the sort of footwork, I suppose, I do, uh, probably came from a very, very early note on in rehearsals when I was getting to work with the motion capture. And motion capture is actually really amazing at 
giving a sense of gravity mm. to characters, which as Ariel you don't necessarily want because he's a thing of the air. So uh, our director, Greg, gave me a note to try working on tiptoes a little bit. And th this was a very offhand remark that I had maybe eight months before I start, but started, but it must have lodged in the back of my mind somewhere because that started to grow into the performance. Um, and, and like the rest of the movement, it was very organic. It wasn't something that I planned or thought, well, let's try that throughout. It was just, it just became a part of his um, physicality. And uh, thankfully, because it was so organic, I, it, it's, um, my balance has got a lot better. I don't feel any, I don't feel any pressure with it um it just seems to be a useful way for ariel to move to give him like you say sort of the lightness the airiness that ariel has we have this fantastic movement director lucy cullingford um had quite a schizophrenic life in stratford upon avon when we were rehearsing in that i'd have uh, the, the main rehearsal room where we would work on the play as you would in any other rehearsal i suppose and then in the evenings i would go into another room in the same building and work with Lucy Cullingford on, um, I suppose, mostly uh, the motion capture elements, but we wouldn't always uh, power up the avatars. Sometimes we would just work on um, my physicality or some gymnastics stuff or some video that we've been inspired by recently. So I had a great luxury of um, getting lots of time with this movement director to explore loads of different things, lots of which hasn't made it into the show, but um, that's the joy of the RSC's sort of eight, nine week rehearsal period, I suppose. And did you get to chat with or work with Andy Circus at some point? Is there anything uh, from him that kind of made its way onto the stage or into the room? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, well, my first, um, my very first rehearsal for Ariel was at Imaginarium Studios, which is in Ealing in West London. And Andy Circus was there and um, he put me in the suit and uh, said, do, do you know what? The best thing we could do is just play some music. So they, they pumped out some classical music. I really need to find out what that is. I can't remember. Um, but uh, it was it was something, um, I don't know, sort of Vivaldi-esque, I guess. And uh and I, I basically ran around for two hours and every so often Andy would come in and give me a little note, maybe about an injury or or maybe a prop like a, a swivel chair because a swivel chair with motion capture technology actually becomes a really useful tool. Not that we have one in the production, but, it, you know, it can create a sense of flight or whatever. So, so yeah, that was wonderful kind of learning from someone who really has pioneered so much of this technology. And, and in fact, I mean asking if any of that has made its way to the production the the notion of injury has because uh, it really struck me what um what an extraordinary thing it must have been for ariel to be trapped in this cloven pine for 12 years and the pain behind that and um our main avatar of ariel has this quite gnarled knotted back and so i i think he carries that with him uh, sort of literally in the digital form, the avatar, but also metaphorically throughout the play, this sort of um, horrific, painful imprisonment. So explain to me, explain to our listeners, why did you mm. guys decide it was, I, I assume, essential to see both you, the actor on stage, and the avatar at the same time? Well, um, very early on, the designer and director decided that... Um, it would be more interesting and more of a theatrical experience to see the puppetry, if you like. So I think in my audition, Greg Doran, who's the director, uh, mentioned Warhorse and how fascinating it is for that stage production to see um, 
not just to invest the the puppet with life, but also to see the puppeteers mastering it. And so that was sort of the very early on idea that it would be it would be interesting to see the actor on stage simultaneously with the avatar. Um, and then, I, really, I attribute it to Simon Russell Beale, who noted very early on um, two moments um, where the the journey for Prospero, but also Ariel, really changed. Moments like, um, well, famously when. Uh, Ariel says that he he would uh, his emotions would become tender if he saw the humans and yes. um, and and Prospero turns to forgiveness instead of uh, vengeance. So um, Simon decided that he really felt very strongly that those moments should be done face to face, which I'm very grateful for, of course, because as an actor you you want to be you know seeing the whites of another actor's eyes in those really key moments. So, yes. Yeah, so, so at that point, we sort of decided that um, that the avatars would be used um, sparing, I suppose, but also in, in sort of crucial points where Ariel could um, could uh, show off, I suppose. <laughs> All right. Now we're going to jump back in time from this 21st century advanced technology to the year 1612 thereabouts. Here's Dr. Chari giving us some historical background on the Tempest and the distinction it has as likely the last play Shakespeare wrote solo without a collaborator. The Tempest was, I mean, and is to an extent still considered the last play written by Shakespeare. And uh, I mean, I think it has its own kind of special status, though, of course, recent scholars argue it's not the last play at all. There was Henry VIII written, you know, after The Tempest, probably in collaboration. But it's often been considered the last play and written in 16, uh, around 1612. And shortly after this, a few couple of years, Shakespeare goes back to Stratford and, well, eventually dies in the year 1616. And so I think it's this position as last play uh, that has... um, I mean, it's interesting to think about, you know, Shakespeare, anyone else, right? I mean, how does one end or kind of wrap up a long, very, very successful career in writing and the arts in general? What does one choose to write about? And I think because of that, The Tempest has a special status in the Shakespearean canon. And of course, it's also very interesting in terms of its genre. It was classified originally as a comedy, but later people called it a romance. And and, um, so it's just kind of very complex in terms of its genre. And some people have even called it a tragic comedy. Dr. Char is also going to tell us about how the Tempest took influence from Jacobean masks. A court mask was a form of entertainment that became popular under the reign of James I when Shakespeare wrote The Tempest. These masks would feature a series of dances and poetry with some narrative elements with extravagant costumes and scenery. I mean, the play was initially uh, most likely enacted uh, as part of the wedding celebrations of King James's daughter. Elizabeth. It's got all the elements of the Jacobian mask, which is a part of, you know, court festivities, very lavish and colorful and um, sort of spectacular, generally speaking. And people have argued that the entire play is a mask, which I think is a bit much. I think it's too complicated to be considered a mask. But I think it's got elements of the mask. And the fact that it was one of the few plays actually written by Shakespeare that was meant to be staged indoors, you know, to stage the for an, uh, not for the open globe theater uh, setting. But because of that, I think Shakespeare could incorporate a lot of the mask elements like uh, music and so on. And, um, and of course, he has the mask in the play itself. There's that whole long section just after uh, Ferdinand and, uh, and Miranda, they get engaged and the father has this whole spectacle, which is sort of very 
mask-like with all the goddesses and and so on showing up and uh, the music and all of that. But because The Tempest was played indoors and it was played for a royal audience, there's a good chance there might have been more by way of uh, props. And uh, there was certainly a lot of music. There were probably musicians on stage and uh, probably a larger orchestra than, you know, than for the regular staging at the Globe. And when, when you teach The Tempest in your classes, what questions do students often have about Ariel or what direction does kind of the class discussion go when it comes to Ariel? Uh, what I find increasingly is they're very interested in the question of gender. I find uh, that students are very interested in talking about Ariel's gender and his gender identity, such as it might be. And of course, they start with the question of male actor. You know, is it a role for a male actor, a female actor? And I, of course, go through the history with them. But um, I think the speculation on what it means for Ariel to be either male or female, I think increasingly um, fascinates students. Originally, it was played by boys. And of course, all roles were played by boys. But for a long time, it was a male role. And then it became a female role in the 19th century. And starting... I would say around 1930 became a role played by male actors again. And some actors have chosen to play as almost as this kind of androgynous, lightly moving figure. And others also lightly moving, but sort of more hyper-masculine. So I guess actors have brought their own interpretations. Earlier, I mentioned Ariel dividing into several flames. That comes up in Act 1, Scene 2, when Ariel describes for Prospero how he fulfilled his master's orders to bring down the ship carrying the King Alonso and the Duke Antonio with the Tempest. Here's a clip of that moment in this RSC production where we actually got to see the Ariel avatar transform into bursts of fire. Hast thou spirit performed to point the Tempest that I bade thee? To every article, I boarded the King's ship. Now on the beak, now in the waist, the deck, in every cabin, I flamed amazement. Sometime I divide and burn in many places. On the topmast, the yards and bowsprits, would I flame distinctly, then meet and join. Jove's lightning, the precursors of the dreadful thunderclaps, more momentary in sight, outrunning were not. The fire and cracks of sulfurous roaring the most mighty Neptune seemed to besiege and make his bold waves tremble. Yea, his dread trident shake. My brave spirit who was so firm, so constant, that this coil would not infect his reason. Not a soul but felt a fever of the man and played some tricks of desperation. All but mariners plunged in the foaming brine and quit the vessel, then all afire with me. The king's son, Ferdinand, with hair upstaring, then like reeds, not hair, was the first man that leapt, cried, Hell is empty, and all the devils are here! Oh, that's my spirit, but was not this nice shore? Close by, my master. But are they aerials safe? Not a hair perished. We found early on in rehearsals that um, that Ariel goes slightly beyond everything that Prospero's asked of him. Mm. Uh, so, for instance, Greg gave me this fantastic note early on in Ariel's speech. He says um, he says that he performed Prospero's task to every article. I boarded the king's ship now on the beach, and then he describes everything that he done, did on the ship. And Greg points out to me that actually putting a bit more emphasis on the word boarded 
in in order to give the sense that um, not only did he perform the shipwreck, but he actually got onto the ship. Um, I just thought that was a really fantastic note that Ariel sort of takes takes all of his orders, but but enjoys it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we we are talking about Ariel, you know, taking glee and watching people go down in a flaming sinking ship. And I mean, we know or later find out that all these people <laughs> get to land safely. But how do you? play that i mean i'm guessing it's kind of a delicate balance making sure it doesn't come across as i mean at the worst sadism like i assume you don't want a sadistic ariel well my no i'd like to think mine isn't sadistic yeah. it's, a, it's a very interesting point though I, I think it's all tied up with how much does ariel know of suffering and actually that that's a journey that he himself goes on through the play so at the beginning like you say he does take a lot of glee in this shipwreck and seeing people go mad and seeing Ferdinand and hair stand on end in presumably shock. Um, and then by the end, seeing Gonzalo, uh, Gonzalo's tears um, elicits a sort of pity from Ariel that he, he I think, sort of surprises him um, that he has a newfound respect for human emotion. So I, I think, for, for me anyway, in the playing of it, the, the glee in the shipwreck is more about the um, seeing the extremity of how these human beings react um, because we we don't know that much about the spirit world, but we do know um, Prospero says to Miranda that Ferdinand eats and sleeps, uh, i.e. he's not a spirit. So presumably spirits don't eat or sleep. Um, we also talked a bit about immortality. I think that Ariel's immortal. So um, the idea that um, life comes to an end, it must be a very, very odd thing if you if you live forever that these other human bodies kind of are fragile, I suppose. So, yeah, I think, I think that's bit Ariel's big journey, really, throughout the play in, in terms of um, discovering a respect for human emotion and suffering and love and, and all, the, all the big emotions that we humans go through. The human who Ariel interacts with the most and has gotten to know best is Prospero. Here's Dr. Chari talking about the relationship between this human master and his sprite servant. It's really a very um, fascinating and a very complicated relationship, I think. Very hard to pin down in some ways because he serves faithfully, even passionately, actually. He serves his master. And yet he's also resentful and uh, clearly resentful. And it is, I think, this kind of paradoxical uh, you know, it's the loyalty and the anger, the hostility he feels. I think both of that make him a very complicated figure. And Prospero, on his turn, relies on him. Even as he's the master, he relies on him. His magic is incomplete without Ariel. Then I think the other very interesting thing is, unlike in the case of Caliban, love is brought into the master-slave relationship here. It complicates the relationship immensely, I think. Because for me, among the most interesting moments in the play, and also the most moving in some ways, is that moment when Ariel asks Prospero, do you love me, master? And what does that even mean? You know, does he need Prospero's love? Does he want or does he pretend to want Prospero's love? Or... uh, and Prospero, in his turn, you know, calls him my dainty spirit and says, I will miss thee and so on and so forth at the end. But is this very profession of love a way of keeping Ariel subservient? Right? These are um, questions one can ask. But I think it's this very, very complex relationship. I talked with Mark Courtley about that moment in their production when Ariel asked Prospero, do you love me, master? In our production, um, myself and Prospero watch 
Ferdinand and Miranda holding hands, which is the point at which I ask Prospero, do you love me, master? Sort of seeing this real moment of tenderness and actually recognising in that something something in the way that Prospero looks at me or has looked at me in the past. And So Ariel's seen Miranda grow up for the past 12 years and grow from um, a three-year-old to a 15-year-old, and she's now a young woman. So I think seeing this young woman who he has such affection for fall in love must be the most extraordinary thing given that <laughs> Ariel's had such little contact with humans mm. um, and then recognizing in that something in the way that his master treats him um, and I think it's a genuine question I don't think Ariel knows the answer but I think he's saying oh is, is that is is what they have for each other what we have for each other or or rather the way that you feel towards me and Simon has a heartbreaking reaction to that in our production anyway. He sort of, it makes him break down, which um, you'd have to ask him why exactly that is. But um, that in itself is an odd moment for Ariel to experience. So, yeah, it's one of those wonderful, ambiguous moments that you could play over a hundred different times and would, would always be different. But uh, I, I think it's another key to the relationship between Ariel and Prospero, that it's not just... It's not a simple master-servant relationship. There's a lot of flavors to it. Okay, let's get into one particular reading of this master-servant relationship. You'll hear now from Dr. Chari about how the Tempest came to be viewed through a post-colonial lens since Prospero does voyage to a far-off land and impose his art, his customs, his will upon the native spirits there. One cannot even talk of England as a colonial power right back in the day, not yet. But, of course, you know, there are the voyages of discovery, there are the stories of the Spanish atrocities in the New World and, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, it's quite clear that some of these travel narratives influence the Tempest. There are texts that Shakespeare's clearly read, written by Englishmen on travels to the Caribbean and elsewhere, which have, uh, and these texts have made their way into the play. The colonial reading itself, the kind of very self-consciously deliberate colonial reading Actually, it was, um, I would say, early in the 20th century, 1900. It was really Latin American writers who first kind of brought a colonial interpretation of the Tempest, thinking about the future of Latin American countries and Uruguay, actually, in particular. And there was this scholar who wrote an essay called Ariel, in fact, where um, he considered the sort of uh, post-colonial Latin American subject as an Ariel. Hmm. And as this kind of enlightened democratic subject, and he had this very optimistic vision of the future of uh, Latin America. And for him, in fact, Caliban was the kind of brazen, brutal uh, kind of being we should not become. And uh, but of course, this changed later and uh, later post-colonial writers, um, you know, including a very well-known Cuban writer, Retamar, Caliban became the hero. Right. Caliban is the oppressed subject and Ariel on the other hand is this kind of uh, is the deftly accomplished slave who's learned to ape his master who serves his master and uh, or he's been read in some by some people as this kind of indentured servant rather than a slave who knows there's freedom at the end and so can behave you know somewhat differently mm-hmm. and uh, yeah I think the colonial uh, the colonial readings um, I mean some of the sort of waves, right, whether it's feminism or post-colonialism, are because of our own historical moment. We bring that historical moment into the Shakespearean text, right? There's no way one can avoid doing that. But I think uh, that doesn't mean anything goes. I mean, I do think uh, The Tempest has, um, I mean, it explores the power dynamic, right, between master and slave, between uh, 
uh, this whole question of possession of land is so central to the play that I think the post-colonial reading is, um, you know, is almost inevitable. In fact, one would think it would have occurred to people a little bit earlier. I'm not saying it's the right reading or the only reading, but it is certainly a very, very viable reading, I think, of The Tempest. And I think it's a reading that also gives the play tremendous weight in uh, many parts of the world. I mean, even where uh, people may not be particularly interested in Shakespeare, I think it's because of this that The Tempest is staged in many parts of the world. Yeah. So I think that alone is enough in some ways to credit the post-colonial reading. So another way this play's been seen is Prospero is often seen by critics as a Shakespeare stand-in, as Shakespeare maybe putting himself into the story, mm -hmm. as artist, as creator. So if we follow through with that analogy, what would you say that makes Ariel? Well, if Prospero is the artist, maybe Ariel is the, simply the imagination, maybe, you know, that which the artist needs um, in the epilogue, it talks about how an audience is needed. You know, your applause, he says, is needed to complete the story. And I think The Tempest recognizes, as an aesthetic project, The Tempest recognizes that uh, the artist's work is completed and complemented by other forces, you know, whether it's the audience or the actors or the directors or, um, you know, whatever else. And uh, and I think, similarly, Ariel is needed to complete and complement uh, Prospero's magic. So I think he can be read almost as any of these things. He can be read as an you know, abstracting like the imagination or he can be read as uh, the actors and the directors and the others who execute the magic in a way. Mark, there are a number of critic scholars who've written about Ariel as imagination incarnate or the art, the yes. imagination that's the product of the artist, the creator, Prospero. Yes. So did you see it that way at all with your production? Is there anywhere you can actually play that? Um, I totally buy the interpretation, but um, yeah, you, you, it's not something I let myself think about as an actor because you can't obviously play someone's super ego. <laughs> um, so I had to treat Ariel as, as real as he might be in Prospero's imagination, if you like. So it's not. I suppose the only, the only thing I would add to that is I was thinking about this last night. I, doing Shakespeare is so wonderful because every so often a line that you really hadn't heard before will hit you. Mm. And I noticed that um, that uh, Prospero calls uh, his brother Antonio in Act Five unnatural, in in a sort of quite a scornful way. He says, uh, "I I, for I do forgive thee, unnatural though thou art." And Ariel's often talked about as being the antithesis of Caliban, who's the sort of the id or of the earth, whatever, and Ariel's of the the ego and of the air. And, and actually, it struck me that maybe. Maybe the biggest insult Prospero can give someone is calling them unnatural because Ariel is the epitome of the natural. He's he's of the world, of the senses of the air. Um, so, yeah, I just <laughs> I don't know whether that informs any sort of scholarly debate, but it was something really interesting that struck me last night. Yeah, I know. That's interesting. You just especially when you can in your production see how much respect and affection Prospero has for Ariel to have that, you know, be opposed to, you know, how he's calling him a natural calling. Shoot, is it Antonio? He calls I hope so. Uh, uh, Antonio, yeah. And I, and, I, and I suppose I feel that in our production anyway, that Antonio is, um, Antonio is the, is the man who has um, sort of infected Prospero's mind for the last 12 years. It's not Caliban. I mean, Caliban, we hear at the beginning of the play, um, 
you know, was treated well by Prosper and Miranda. And then there was this accusation of rape, which um, which sort of made them turn him turn him out of their cell. But I certainly don't I don't see Caliban as the sort of um, malevolent force in the play, particularly. Yes, it's his brother Antonio whom Prospero tosses ashore with this tempest. It's Antonio and his fellow members of the court who are tormented by the harpy-formed Ariel that Prospero has sent after them. It's Antonio on whom Prospero intends to continue enacting his revenge. Until. Ariel describes for Prospero how full of sorrow and dismay these men are now, as a charm imprisons them in a grove of trees. Ariel then says... Your charm so strongly works on him, that if you now beheld them, your affections would become tender. Prospero says, Dost thou think so, spirit? And Ariel responds, Mine would, sir, were I human. Prospero decides to release Antonio and the king and his fellow courtiers, and he forgives these people who betrayed him. Ariel has moved his master to mercy. I asked Dr. Chari about this. So Prospero is on this revenge path the whole play, and then it's Mm -hmm. Ariel who manages to convince Prospero to be merciful to Alonso and Antonio and everybody. So what do you think it is about Ariel or maybe his relationship to Prospero that has him succeed in this moment where Portia fails, where Isabella fails, where Tamara fails in their pleas for mercy? And it's Mm -hmm. not really a plea from Ariel so much, but that's, you know, still the effect that he inspires or convinces Prospero to be merciful to these people? I guess there are a couple of ways of thinking about that. On the one hand, uh, the very fact he's not human, right? Not human in the accepted sense. That makes it maybe easier for Prospero to learn from him or listen to him. Right? Unlike all the other characters you mentioned, you have uh, this abstract sort of, you know, spirit being and... uh, that could be one way of thinking about it. And of course, the, another way of thinking about it is Prospero's ready at this point, you know, to forget and forgive and Ariel sort of simply gives him the little nudge. So in this moment, we're talking about when Ariel tells Prospero how he would feel were I human. I mean, we know mm-hmm. he's right. We know he's not human. Um, but what, what do you think we're really supposed to take away from that line? It, is he telling us he does not feel human emotion? Or is he challenging Prospero's humanity or what? I think he seems to be saying, uh, I'm not human. And uh, I personally cannot feel right these complex emotions. And uh, like not just emotions, but reactions to the world, like forgiveness and so on that... Uh, humans feel, but I'm able to imagine them. Here's Mark Courtley chiming in on that were I human line. I struggled for a long time with this um, seeming sort of hypocrisy or, or paradox in that Ariel seems to be a spirit without emotion and yet so clearly experiences emotions throughout the play. And and actually, I think that he experiences more and more emotion the the more that he gets to observe these humans and their funny and moving ways. So I'm yeah, I'm not sure how much that line is delivered with a, a sort of twinkle in the eye in mm. in terms of Ariel becoming more human throughout the course of the play. Ariel serves Prospero faithfully, but he also repeatedly reminds Prospero that he has promised to release him. It gets us wondering, just how is Ariel going to live it up once he has his freedom? There is a song Ariel sings in Act 5 that gives us a sense of how this spirit has pictured the day he is finally free. 
Well, the text gives us this kind of pastoral vision of freedom, right? Where the bee sucks their sakai and um, in the cowslip's bell I lie and so on, which is really very beautiful, I think. And a little bit sort of children's picture book, but I still think very beautiful the vision of freedom. You know, it's this kind of, you know, joining the elements, becoming one with the elements and... Uh, which can also be read, you know, apart from the, I didn't say children's picture book, but it can be read in some ways as a very profound, you know, way of thinking about what happens to all of us, to all living things, right? This kind of, when one merges with the universe as such at, at large and becomes one with the elements at the very end, yeah. Where the bee sucks the suck eye, In a cowslip's bell I lie there I couch when owls do cry On the bat's back I do fly The song Where the Bee Sucks, which is a beautiful song talking about all these sort of glorious things he, he might do when he's free, happens at a really odd place in the play. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, I think it's there for a reason. I think it's there because... That's Ariel's notion of what his freedom will feel like, but the reality of it must be harder than that. I, I don't think it, you know, in the in the same way that a prisoner might sit in their cell and think of all the the wonderful experiences, but actually, he, I think he's quite a solitary character, Ariel. I don't think he will go and play with the other spirits, or um, I, I hope he finds some kind of peace. But I think he might he might be sat on that island waiting for someone to come along that he can serve. You can really hear the joy in that rendition of this Where the Bee Sucks song that Mark sings in this RSC production. The text gives us that jubilant anticipation of freedom toward the beginning of the play's final act, but Ariel does not vocalize any of that joy when he's actually freed. When Prospero does free him at the very end of Act 5, the text has Prospero giving him one final order to create calm seas for the ships that will take them back to Naples. Prospero says, That is thy charge. Then to the elements, be free, and fare thou well. Since Ariel has one final task to carry out, this RC production could have delivered one more display of their high-tech Ariel avatar, but that's not the route they took. And I'm actually glad they didn't. What they did instead was understated and just very touching, and I think really fit this production that really brought out an affection between Ariel and Prospero. At the show filmed in Stratford for the cinema release, after Prospero says, be free, Mark Courtley's Ariel turns away from him and just rather simply, unremarkably, begins to amble away, you know, this walk on tiptoe. And then Ariel turns to look back at the man who's been his master for 12 years. And Simon Russell Beale's Prospero waves him on, gives the sprite this gesture like, it's okay, go ahead. This is a rather different approach to this moment than the last time Simon Russell Beale was in an RSC production of The Tempest. Back in 1993, he played the part of Ariel. I'll have Mark tell you about that. In terms of his freedom and uh, and that being the driving force behind Ariel, uh, it's kind of fascinating and, uh, and you could play it in so many different ways. In fact, Simon Russell Beale, who's our Prospero, played Ariel at the RSC about um, 25 years ago or something like that. And he famously uh, spat in Prospero's face uh -huh. at the moment of being granted his freedom, uh, which I was very aware of. And, and actually... 
now uh, I think he would admit that he's sort of changed his opinion on that. Maybe it's through playing Prospero, I don't know. But but certainly we have more tenderness than that in the production. Um, or, or rather, yes, that, that Ariel and Prospero are sort of best friends, despite there being some resentment. But then that's friendship as well. You know, it's fraught as well as it is um, wonderful and glorious. So, so when I'm finally freed, albeit the thing that um, he's been craving throughout the play, I think it's a very hard moment. And, um, and I probably give quite an unsatisfying ending. I'm not sure how the audience feel about it, but um, I, I think it's just an ambiguous moment. We tried lots of different things, and and to be honest, it's never the same. Um, we've we've kind of settled upon a, a, a rough feeling for it, which is quite um, unsatisfactory, quite unfinished in a way, because there's so much that. Well, I certainly feel in the playing of it, the experiences that I would. Um, there's so much I want to say to him if this is the last time we'll see each other, which we presume it is, given that he's he's off to Naples. Um, with his daughter and and the rest of the lords, but yes, I, I we. I, mean, I suppose the reason. There's not one reason... last spectacle. There's not one last you know light show or whatever. Um, no, we have Aaron no, and I, down to I don't know if you'd call that his essence or what. Yeah, it, it could be that. I mean, it's um, you're right. I, in another production with all this technology, maybe we we could have done something incredibly flashy, but. But I think it's just a hard moment, and I think we shouldn't shy away from that. I think rather than it being, like I say, that moment of joy, which you get from uh, Where the Bee Sucks, which is comes maybe 20 minutes earlier, mm-hmm. I think it's um, it's sort of facing up to that stark reality of actually being free and not seeing your best friend, the per- a person you love, anymore. So it's sort of, yeah, it's a bittersweet moment. So, Mark, you've gotten to have, you know, kind of a full, great second run of this show at the Barbican that mm. you're in the middle of now. But what do you think? Have you thought about it all? What it'll be like when you have to finally actually say goodbye to Ariel? <laughs> oh, don't say <laughs> not that. To, not to, like, force <laughs> things you don't want to think about upon you. But... No, it will. Of course, it will be sad. And I've lived with this one for a particularly long time. So, um, so yeah, it, it is very odd because... Uh, I've become very fond of playing Ariel, and uh, and al- although my makeup and costume and wig call is <laughs> incredibly early, so um, uh, I spend a lot of time in not the most comfortable of uh, of outer gear. It's it's been a joy and so such a learning process on so many different levels. But then I always think you take elements of work that you've done before onto other things. So, but although I I will. Um, maybe not put on the tight uh, lycra onesie of Ariel anymore. There'll, there'll be elements of, of his life that I might use in future work. Yeah. It would be interesting, I bet, for you to play Puck, play another you know, trickster spirit, but very, very Absolutely. different type of character. Absolutely. And, and I think um, Puck and Ariel are often sort of thought of as being too similar, but I, I'd be fascinated to explore that character in more depth because... Of course, they're not, and um, and and Shakespeare, you know, creates his characters so so fully that um, it would be fascinating, yeah, to to see sort of where he diverges in the spirit world. Yeah. Now, Mark, I know you've had quite the unique and special experience playing Ariel, but I'd still like to hear from you. What 
advice would you give to a fellow actor taking on the role of Ariel, you know, even if he or she didn't get to have, you know, not mocap advice necessarily, but just about embodying this character? Oh, <laughs> well, disclaimer is that um, is that I, I am by no means a um, an expert, but I suppose the best advice I would give is to make it your own. And there's such license I've discovered playing Ariel to really let your imagination go wild. You know, you don't have to be um, anything of the, the human world. You can get rid of the trappings of 21st century society and just just sort of let, let yourself go wild with it. That was something I discovered more throughout rehearsals, you know, because I suppose you start working in your Nike trainers with your baggy jeans or whatever, and then you um, slowly try and become something other. It's such a wonderfully stretching part. I really hope as many actors as possible get the chance to do it, both male and female, of course, because uh, I've seen some fantastic female aerials and, uh, and it's a great part. A big thank you to our two guests on this episode, Brenda Chari and Mark Courtley. Original music for the podcast is by Daryl Chadwick. Art is by Chris Weller. This Royal Shakespeare Company production of The Tempest, starring Simon Russell Beale and Mark Courtley, runs at the Barbican in London through August 18th. If you'd like to purchase tickets, you can go to barbican.org.uk or, for our British listeners, call 020 7638 8891. If London is not nearby for you and you don't have your own sprite to carry you there in a fleet of ships, you can watch this production filmed before an audience in Stratford on DVD, available at rsc.org.uk. If you'd like to hear about the vision, the interpretation of another Shakespeare play also helmed by Mark's director, Gregory Doran, listen to episode 8 of the podcast. That one features an interview with actress Mariah Gale about her performance of Ophelia for the Royal Shakespeare Company. Gregory Doran, who is now the RSC's artistic director, directed that 2008 Hamlet production too. To stay updated on Shakespeare's shadows, give us a follow on Facebook or Twitter at at Shakeshadows. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, fare thee well.